Our passage tonight is 2 Corinthians 5, um, verse 8 to 21. It's page 1160 of your Bibles. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him, for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen, rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself, though Christ gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thanks be to God. It's a great task. A fantastic task, an exciting task, isn't it? The work of sharing the good news of Jesus. But as I said a moment ago, whenever you get challenged and asked, maybe here's an invitation for you to bring to someone you think, not again. Maybe you've had a bad week. Maybe there's loads of assignments. Maybe there's loads of things on at home. Maybe there's loads of things that are distracting you. And you think to yourself, yeah, I've got to fit that thing in. I'll feel guilty otherwise. There's this service next week. And the week after this, an event next month, I've been challenged and told Go and bring someone. There are those people I know in my halls or my street who do not know about Jesus. I really ought to speak to them, but just can't be bothered. I, I, I don't feel it. There's nothing inside me that really pushes me or drives me to do any of that sort of thing. Do you find yourself in that position? What should motivate us to speak about Jesus? What should motivate us to get into this great work of mission? Over this last number of weeks, been thinking from Ephesians about God's great gospel, God's great message, and what an incredible vision we have there. This great God, this massive God who rescues people who've rejected Him. And then we'll come to the reasons for doing mission from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And what we find is that the message from Ephesians is the thing, as we get an insight into Paul, and this is his most personal letter, 
the thing that he has outlined in Ephesians, the thing that he's outlined in 1 Corinthians, the thing that he's outlined already in 2 Corinthians, the message itself, the thing itself is the thing that drives him, that pushes him out. The message is the motivation. I don't know if many of you are Apple product owners. I don't know if many of you have gone into the Apple store and you've purchased in the Apple store an Apple product. Okay, I don't know if many of you are PC owners and you've gone into Curry's or you've gone into PC World. Have you ever noted the contrast between the Apple store workers and the Curry's workers? PC World, Dixon's workers. Have you ever noticed? You go into an Apple store and they're all so happy. Have you noticed that? They're really thrilled to be able to sell you their product because they believe in the product. They're utterly convinced of its worth, its value. They know that you will enjoy it. They know that you will benefit from it. They know that you will not have any viruses. Whereas you go into the Dixons, Curry's, PC world, and you say, I'm here to buy a computer, I'm here to buy a PC, and they go, all right. Because all that they see is, here's going to be another disappointed customer. Inevitably, there'll be some form of breakdown, either in the hardware, the software, or indeed the owner. Because you will have pushed and pushed and pushed, and the thing will not work. My daughter got a laptop, Santa Claus brought her a laptop a couple of months ago, no, a couple of years ago rather, but she needs a new laptop. What are you doing to it? Daddy, it just doesn't work. It is a PC. If I had gone X number of years ago and persuaded Santa to go to the Apple store, I know that the thing that we would have bought there would have worked. Have you noticed how far that the product itself motivates the salesperson? Have you noted that? The contrast between Curry's salespeople, do any of you work in Curry's or Dixon's or anywhere like that? Do any of you work in the Apple store? You will be happy because you have utter confidence in your product. You know its saleability. You know its reliability. You know that the thing that you have to sell, to push, that is why Paul did the work of mission. That is why Paul did the work of sharing this message outlined for us over this last number of weeks in Ephesians to everyone, everyone, without hesitation. He was pushed by his product. He was utterly convinced and motivated by his message. Let's work through the logic of this as we look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me read verses 8 to 11. We're confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Just by the way, he's been talking about death. He's been talking about the real possibility, the distinct possibility about death and the treasure that is the gospel that is contained within a jar of clay, a worthless jar of, a, a worthless first century equivalent to a shopping bag. He knows his life is ebbing away. The pressure, the intensity, the hatred, the persecution, the oppression that he's been facing, he knows that's taking its toll. But see how he views his life? 
Verse 9, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body, alive, or away from it, dead and with Christ. Because look, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. He tells us that fear brings persuasion. Verse 11, we know what it is to fear the Lord. Why ought we to fear the Lord? Why ought we to fear the Lord? Is this an irrational fear? I've got a young son. He's now seven. When he was much younger, children are very expensive, so you have to get some kind of fun out of them. When he was much younger, I would tell him a story night-night. I'd read the Bible, we'd pray, and then night-night, son, night-night. And I'd close the door, I'd turn off the lights, close the door, and go quiet. And a moment or so later, Tom would go, Daddy, 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 and I'd be completely quiet. Completely quiet. Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. Completely quiet. And then it would go, wow, like that in the room. <laughs> that make anyone jump? <laughs> Now, for Tom, Tom was possessed with fear. For the next number of nights, I would do that. It would only last about three years or so, but the counseling is helping. (laughs) Tom's fear was entirely irrational. Entirely irrational. Because he didn't know what was behind the door. There mightn't have been anything. He didn't know what was lurking behind the dark room. He didn't know. His fear was entirely irrational. The fear that Paul describes here in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, is entirely rational. This is not the fear of the unknown. This is not the fear of the one who's cowering in the corner wondering, what is God like? I haven't a clue. He could be a monster. That isn't the fear that he's talking about. The fear that he speaks of here is the fear, not an ignorant fear, but a full knowledge of who he's dealing with, the true and the living God. A God who judges, verse 10, for we must all, before the, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That is, think the same word equivalent, was a, is a, is a, um, a judge's seat, the bench that he sits on, the judge will sit on. It's the same idea. The judgments are from a court, from a secular court. The judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. For the Christian, that is commendation. For the non-Christian, that is condemnation. What does the knowledge of this fear bring? He fears the Lord because he knows who he is dealing with. The true and the living God, into whose hands If you fall, it is a dreadful thing. The one who sees every bit of you, everything to do with you, everyone in all of creation. The one, if you want to know just exactly what our sin means to God, 
Listen to Jesus' words on the cross. My, as he's hanging there, as he's stretched out, as he gasps for breath, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Paul knows that. This is not a, an irrational fear, a cowering fear, a fear without knowledge. This is a fear because he knows who he's dealing with. And what does that do to him? Does it cripple him? No. It drives him. Fear brings persuasion. We know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. Now, if you know the Lord, that knowledge will lead to fear, the beginning of wisdom. If you know the Lord and you know that He will judge everyone, He will judge your friends. He will judge your Christian friends. He'll judge your non-Christian friends. That fear, how does it motivate us? First, fear brings persuasion. Secondly, love brings compulsion. Have a look at verse 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Love brings compulsion. I don't know if you've picked this up. Maybe, maybe you're not familiar with this passage of the Bible. We don't tend to read 2 Corinthians. Maybe a few verses we like, you know, my strength, you know, sufficient for you, all that sort of stuff. Maybe we know some of it. But what we'd have here is in First Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we have this motivation which is drawn from the gospel, the message of the gospel, the thing that you speak to people so that they can be saved, so that they can be right with God, so that they can experience eternal life and live with Jesus forever. The actual thing, that message that you share, is the thing that will drive you out. We've been saying that already. And what we find here are the various elements of that message are touched on. So we get judgment, verse 10. We get love. We get the cross. In these two verses, verse 14 and 15, love brings compulsion. For Christ's love compels us. Fear drives us, brings persuasion. But love brings compulsion. God's love, shown in Jesus' death on the cross, drives us out. And, and the word here compels us, kind of, we can, it's, it, we've got no other option but to. I'm compelled to. I'm hemmed in. I can't go anyway apart from this way. We're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. The death of Jesus, the heart of the gospel, is a driving force, isn't it, for his work of ministry and mission and speaking about Jesus. The cross of Jesus shows us God's love. And here we are told the why of God's love. We're also told the what of God's love. Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all. You want to know, does God love you? Where do you find that? In a soppy message? 
a soppy song that might make you feel a bit better. No, no, open your eyes and look to a cross, a bloodied Roman gibbet outside the city walls of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. You want to know if God loves you. And didn't that come across from Shannon tonight? She knows that God loves her. She knows that God has accepted her. She knows that her sins are forgiven. She is convinced, to use language of verse 14, we're convinced that one died for all. Jesus died instead of. Therefore, all died. There are two exchanges in this passage. This is the first one. Christ for all. First part of the exchange, the first part of the first exchange, Christ died for all. How are we to respond? Verse 15, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. What do you live for? To maintain your reputation, to maintain your friends, to maintain your thing. What do you live for? Honestly, tonight, ask yourself that question. What do I live for? Money? Fame? Sports? Sex? Relationships? Of whatever variety? Is that what you live for? It doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't make any sense to live for those temporary things. Those things that will not last. It makes so much more sense, doesn't it? Have a look. To exchange your life for the one who exchanged his for yours. Let me say that again. It makes so much more sense, doesn't it? To exchange your life for the one who exchanged his life for yours. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Of course we live for ourselves. You know you live for yourself. Isn't that what life is about? Isn't that what culture, society, the world tells us? Be fulfilled. Make sure you're happy. Make sure you feel good. Make sure your identity is solid and strong. But that all comes from inside. And you and I know where that leads you. In some cases, despair. Why live for something or someone who's temporary. Rather live for the one who died for you and is alive for you. Live for him. See your entire life shaped by this central thing in the message that you have to share. The cross of Jesus, the death of Jesus, his resurrection. What does that bring you? Well, it brings you a reason to live. See how the shape of the gospel pushes us, drives us, shapes our motivation. Love brings compulsion. Fear brings persuasion. Love brings compulsion. Thirdly, conversion brings new creation. Verses 16, 17. So from now on, and those little words like so and therefore and at, all those connecting words, the small words have huge significance. Even though they're small, just a couple of letters, they have huge significance. So the so functions like a therefore. When you see a therefore, you've got to ask what it's 
Thank you, Maddie. Wow, he's awake. Therefore, so from now on, like now, in the light of what he's just said, in the light of that death, in the light of that resurrection, in that, light, that great exchange, as you exchange your life for the one who gave his life for you, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so. How did Paul, and this is, this is autobiographical, this is not the royal way. Sorry. Yes, it is the royal way. This is not a, a plural here. We regard no... How did he view Jesus before he knew Jesus? How did he view him? Well, probably in the same way as your friends do. Actually, scrub that. Much worse. For your friends, Jesus might be a mild irritant, something that those Christians, someone those Christians talk of at Easter, at Christmas, when there's a carol service happening. Come along, come along, come along. That's a bit irritating. Paul was intensely irritated by Jesus. He wanted to wipe Jesus, his followers, eradicate that thing from the face of the earth. He hated Jesus. Saul enabled the routing and the extermination of Jesus' followers. As that first Christian martyr, Stephen, died, where was Saul? Well, he was standing there, egging them on, holding their coats, holding their, as they threw the stones. He hated, hated, hated Jesus. Jesus was an irritant par excellence. That was the worldly point of view. He saw Jesus kind of bottom up, He also saw everyone around him. Similarly, the Gentiles, he was a Jew, Paul was a Jew, think of the national pride, the, the religious national pride. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. As he viewed Jesus, he hated Jesus. But then something happened. He regarded Christ in that way. We do so no longer. You see, as his view on Jesus changed, his view on the others around him, the Gentiles, those to whom he had been given the mission to speak about Jesus. How do you view people? What is your thought about those living in your halls, in your street, in your house? What is your view? Do you see them from this perspective? Let me read a commentator, one of, the, one of the guys who's written a fairly thick book on this. Murray Harris is his name. Ever since Paul's own conversion to Christ, he has ceased making superficial, mechanical judgments about others on the basis of outward appearances, such as national origin, social status, intellectual capability, physical attributes, or event charismatic endowment and pneumatic displays. Perhaps this is a hint to the Corinthians too, to avoid doing similar, especially to him, that is Paul, and not to judge him, their spiritual father, on the basis of such fickle, superficial, and inappropriate criteria. That's how he saw Jesus. But look at how he sees Jesus now. Look at how he sees those who 
become Christians who are in Jesus. Look at the next line, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Sometimes whenever someone becomes a Christian and tells their story, which certainly wasn't the case tonight, when they tell their story, it's like, well, I've become a Christian. I've, I've got a new lease of life. I've turned over a new leaf in life. I've got a bit of fulfillment and just a new way of living. I kind of cleaned up my act a bit. Oh, that's insane. That's insulting. When someone becomes a Christian, they move from death, condemnation, exclusion, judgment to condemnation. They move from hell to heaven. Do you see how he puts it here, verse 17? And actually, in this verse, I'm going to give you a whole summary of the Bible, the whole story of God's story. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a Christian, in Christ, his favorite terminology, we saw that in Ephesians, we see it in Corinthians here, in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Right, I'm about to give you, I don't know if any of you did A-level RE or you're doing theology. I'm about to give you the, the whole message of the Bible. You ready? This, is, this will help you pass any exam at all. The whole message of the Bible in one go. Creation, God makes everything. Jesus, new creation. That's impressive, isn't it? So, creation, everything's made. Jesus, new creation. That's the major outline. God's moving in a certain direction. He sends Jesus so that new creation, his people, don't undermine and reduce just exactly what becoming a Christian is. So, creation, Jesus, new creation. Do you see how he puts this? If anyone is in Christ, so here's Jesus, right? A few thousand years later, here's us, here's you. If anyone is in Christ, anyone, you, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. This moment, the new creation, happens for you. Do you see that? Creation, Jesus, new creation, conversion. Could be here, it could be here, could be here. It might be one of your friends here. It might be a parent or grandparent or great-great-grandparent or, or someone who spoke to you about Jesus. It could be you. This is what happens to you. This is what happens to them when they become a Christian. When they become in Christ. Do you see how the gospel motivates you? What a task. What a job. What a privilege. So when you don't feel like it, conversion brings new creation. Finally, God brings reconciliation. Verse 18 to 21. Fear brings persuasion. Love brings compulsion. Conversion brings creation, new creation. Fourthly, God brings reconciliation. Verse 18. That just, by the way, those emphatic words, the new has come. Verse 18. All this is from God 
who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Religious people talk about reconciliation, don't, don't they? That's kind of the constant theme. It certainly has been in Northern Ireland. It is in our particular family of churches, Christian, Anglican churches. The Archbishop of Canterbury has got a, a director for rec- a, kind of a centrally paid, centrally facilitated director of reconciliation for the worldwide Anglican communion. It's one of those words you expect Christians to use, but sometimes whenever it's used, it's devoid of biblical meaning. Sometimes. Because the reconciliation that they mean in certain cases, probably most cases, is to do with me and you, or you and you. It's to do with kind of a horizontal reconciliation where we've fallen out and we need to be reconciled, brought together or to countries or to warring factions of whatever kind. But do you see how Paul is using it here? Who is to be reconciled to whom? Verse 18, all this is from God. Who? Reconciled us to himself. Now, that might come as a surprise to you this evening. I don't know if everyone in this building is a Christian here this evening, but let me say, you're, if you're not a Christian, you're at war with God. No, actually, let me be more precise. God is at war with you. There's a big issue. God is a massive issue with you. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself We need to be reconciled to God. God needs to be reconciled to us. All this is from God. Who is able, who on earth is able to be reconciled to God? Well, we can't do it because we're the ones who've messed up. It is only God who can reconcile us, who can do the business of reconciliation. And do you see the direction? It is vertical. Rather, it starts up here, God reconciling us to himself. Right, that's the message that you have for your mates. That's the message that you want to share. That's the message you want your mates to hear, surely, that God has an issue with them, that they're needing to be reconciled And look, verse 18, not only, and this is quite incredible, isn't it? Not only is God so kind and generous and gracious that he does the work of reconciliation, as in sending Jesus to die on the cross. He is so gracious and generous and kind that he gives the world people who do the work of reconciliation. Or rather, if you have a look here, verse number 19, sorry, end part of verse number 18, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, those who will speak, those who will share, 
Have a look. Verse 20. We, royal we, Paul, and his apostolic band, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Verse 19 tells us what the core of the message is, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Jesus Christ. You see the direction of the reconciliation? It's vertical, but it's top down, not horizontal. Not counting men in Christ, not counting men's sins against us, and he has committed to us, that is Paul, the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Being an ambassador would be a fancy gig, wouldn't it? You'd love to do it, I'm sure. You know, every time you fly into another country, you kind of represent your country, and you fly into exotic climes, you, you kind of go from there, and you're, you're guided onto the plane, you're almost carried onto the plane, you're kind of a Mr. Ambassador, Mrs. Ambassador, you're carried onto the plane, and then the plane takes off and then lands in the country to which you're being sent as an ambassador, and the kind of, the car is underneath the wing of the, pl- the limousine, the, the wing of the plane, and you step out of the plane, and there's a round of applause, and you get into the car, and all the Ferrari in the world. No one knows what that I'm referring to. Being an ambassador today in the 21st century is a very civilized, very cultured kind of thing, a hugely privileged thing. Let me tell you what being an ambassador was like in the first century. So a king would be at war with another king, and an ambassador would be sent on a horse to the other country, to the other faction, to the other will be sent on that horse, and then the other king would receive with the message this ambassador. How would that go down? Would there be a, a formal diplomatic meeting? Would there be a special reception? Would there be kind of Lucifer Roche, Mr. Ambassador? You do spoil us as they meet, as they meet one with the other? Well, no. If the king in whose country you are has been at war with you and he doesn't like you, he doesn't like the message, how does he send you back? Probably strapped to the horse with your head in a basket attached to the horse. That is what being an ambassador in the first century was like. It was a risky business. A risky business nothing privileged about it at all. It would have been one of those jobs you would have, you know, kind of hidden from the bosses. You just would not have wanted to have done it because reasonably certain of your death. You can see the parallel. You can see the choice of word here as Paul thinks of himself and the work of himself. It's dangerous. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors Speaking in in this God, humanity, need for reconciliation. Paul says, humanity, be reconciled. See that? Have a look. End of verse 20. We implore you on Christ's behalf, and his voice probably gets higher and louder, and he stands on his tiptoes. Be reconciled to God. You've got to be reconciled to God. If if you're not, what a nightmare. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Isn't God incredible? 
that he is so gracious in sending Jesus. And he's so gracious in sending you to a lost, dying, and hell-bound world. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. That's your job. That's your task. That's your mission. Should you choose to accept it? That's what will get you out of bed in the morning. That's what will make you, all of the social embarrassment and red faces that there will be coming up to all of these events, we would love you to bring your non-Christian friends to family to. This will drive you. Reconciliation, Christ's love, the fear of God, not the rational fear, the rational, knowledgeable fear of God. Here's the second of those two exchanges. As he proclaims reconciliation, that is Paul, what does he come back to? Verse 21, he comes back to the core reason and interpretation of the events 2,000 years ago when Jesus was strung mercilessly, brutally, painfully up on a Roman cross. What was going on? Why did Jesus die? Oh, to show us love. Oh, to be a great example. Oh, to defeat the demons. Well, here's what was going on. Verse 21. God made him. That's Jesus. I want to be absolutely clear. It's no one else. Not Paul. God made him who had no sin. Let that sink in. The perfect man. To be sin for us. No sin. Innocence. Innocence, quite literally, personified. To be sin for us, this is this great exchange, the great swap. So that, the remainder of the verse, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might become everything in terms of righteousness that Jesus is. Jesus gets our sin we get Jesus's sinlessness, righteousness, perfection, so that we're able to face God and God will say to us, my son, my daughter, my child, come in. No longer at war, you're forgiven. Are you prepared to accept the challenge to open your mouth and speak of Jesus? To say to your friends, are you, are you card? Are you fearful? Are you scared? What on earth could embarrass you so much whenever you've got this to bring to them? The thing that you've experienced, if you're a Christian, the thing that you've experienced, you've got the answers. You've got life. Fear brings persuasion. Love brings compulsion. Conversion brings new creation. Not just a kind of leaf, new leaf, new life sort of. It, it, no, it's, 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 it's entirely brand new creation. God brings reconciliation from himself to us in Jesus. From himself to us 
in Jesus, and then that spreads out from us. That's his plan. That's his mission. Are you with us? Are you with us here? Are you with him? Let's pray. So we make it our goal to please him. Whether we're at home in the body or away from it, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Our judge, Heavenly Father, we praise you. Our judge is our Savior. Hallelujah. We pray that you would spur us out with this message, that this message would motivate us, to reach, motivate us to reach a lost, a dying, an ignorant, a blind, a sinful world. Please give us courage. Please sharpen us. Please forgive us for keeping our mouths shut. Please compel us with your love. We praise you for this message. May it be our motivation. In Jesus' name, amen.